Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Paget here and we are back for a third season of the Logo Geek podcast. To kick things off, we're going to be chatting with Douglas Davis about creative strategy and the business of design. But before we dive into that, I do want to say a massive thank you to FreshBooks who have once again sponsored this season of the podcast and made it possible. For those who are not aware of FreshBooks, it's a cloud accounting software designed for creative professionals to help you create invoices, track expenses, and get paid. If you're not a numbers person, FreshBooks is the solution for you. So I highly recommend you check it out and you can do that with a free 30-day trial. To grab that, all you need to do is go to freshbooks.com forward slash logageek and be sure to enter Logo Geek in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So um, you probably noticed I've started this season with a slight cold. The interview is fine, but you're going to notice that the intro, uh, the midpoint where I'll talk a little bit about FreshBooks and the uh, end of this, I'm going to have this slight cold, um, but hopefully it's just going to be this one episode and uh, I'll be back to normal. But you know how these things go. Um, So anyway, as mentioned, this week's interview is with Douglas Davis, the man behind one of my favorite books, Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. Now, the reality is if you want to be a successful designer, you want to get clients, you want to make money, you need to understand business and strategy. And that's the reason why I brought Douglas on to chat about this topic in more detail. Like I said, I highly recommend you check out his book, Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. It's an absolutely fantastic book and it will support this interview fantastically. So anyway, let's jump into this. Here is the interview with Douglas Davis. In your book, you discuss a number of business terms. Why do you feel that it's important for designers to know and understand the the business lingo that you described in your book? This is important, Ian, um, and I'll tell you a story as a result of answering this question. Um, Back in January 2015, I believe it was, uh, I received a really kind invitation to give a keynote address in St. Petersburg, Russia at an art and branding conference. So I would be one of four international speakers, the only American. Um, And I was invited to share the stage with the top Russian experts in branding. And so Ian, my first thought was, yeah, right. Who knows my work in Russia? This is fake. But in New York, everybody knows somebody. And I just happened to have quite a few Russian students in Brooklyn uh, and at New York City College of Technology where I teach. And I showed them this invitation and they were like, no, professor, this is a legit invite. This is like, they're asking you to come through. So I'm like, wow. So fast forward, I'm on stage and the discussion begins in Russian. So I can't understand anything. My translator, he's furiously scribbling down notes and ever so often he whispers a summary of what's being discussed in my ear. And I answer a few questions, in in my opinion, with uh, some well-reasoned insight. Um, But to tell you the truth, I can't be sure that I answered anything because I'm translated, (laughs) right? So here's how it went. When I said a lot, I'd pause so the translator could translate. And to Mm -hmm. that, my translator would respond, go on. So I did. But then when I say a little bit, he translate for a really long time. 
And we continued like that back and forth, standing next to each other on stage. So after my session, I had no idea whether I connected with the audience through translation. Obviously, things get lost. The mm -hmm. rest of the speakers present. The same translator translates. We do the interviews. He translates. After a few, like a, a full eight-hour day of presentations, the conference is over, Ian. So we're all relaxing. We're at a mixer. The three international presenters and I were acknowledging the translator's work. We're all recognizing that this dude was working harder than any of us were individually because he translated a whole day, four presentations, four panel discussions. Mm -hmm. So as I'm thanking this guy, along with the group, he turns to me and said, he's, he says, actually, I've never translated before, and I didn't know how to communicate most of what you guys were saying. Oh. <laughs> so you ask why <laughs> the terms. <laughs> the takeaway from this story that I flew halfway around the whole world to basically stand on stage next to these experts and have this guy who couldn't even communicate what <laughs> we were saying is that, you know, the reason why I start with the terms is that as visual communicators, we're asked to translate the rational language of business into the emotional language of design. And the, the commonality is that communication requires understanding and business is a language. And mm -hmm. yet we weren't taught that in design school. Creativity is a method of communication and most business people, they won't learn that. So really, you know, you, your firm, the client can really only get by for so long sitting in meetings, nodding your heads when you actually don't understand each other. That's mm -hmm. why the terms start. First things first. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think what you put together in your book is a really useful guide. Um, I know personally, I've picked up a lot of the um, terms you described literally on the job. You know, I've, I've right. been fortunate to be in meetings with, um, you know, more senior people that do understand these terms and you kind of pick them up. But I think if you are freelance or just starting out, you've got no idea what these terms are. So I think what you've done is fantastic um, guide for that and it will definitely help a lot of people if they haven't already read your book thank you so just so. moving on from that i know another important factor of um talking the business lingo is designing based on uh, strategy and right. i know in your book you um dive into that quite a lot so i'd be interested to talk about this a little bit more so what would you say are the benefits of using a strategic approach when working on design? Well, I personally have found several benefits and they range from landing more creative work to growing the piece of business that you might already have as a freelancer or as a firm or as an agency. Um, but that's, that's really the low-hanging fruit. Ultimately, designers, really, the real benefit is understanding that what we're asked to do is that we're being asked to solve a business problem with design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally think and have found that our way of communicating is a means to an end. Um, and that took me a little while to understand as well. I was like you on the job, not really understanding what was, you know, the high level conversation that was going mm -hmm. on. Because in design school, you're taught that, you know, make it pretty, make it beautiful, choose the right typeface. And, and those things are important. They're, they're very important because those are the tangible aspects of 
uh, brands, and we have to really choose those carefully. Um, but again, the, the vocabulary uh, in the first chapter of the book, um, if you're familiar with this designer uh, called Tibber Coleman, he's, um, I think in the 90s, he passed away, but I really love what he talks about in, in quite a few interviews. But in one interview, he said, we're here to inject art into commerce. And that was after in, at the end of a, a longer um, statement from him. Mm-hmm. But if we can't really do that if we don't understand what commerce is. So to put it in another way, um, we as people providing creative business solutions, you can unlock the difference between a one-time transaction with a client who needs a logo and a strategic partnership where you, the creative problem solver, are invaluable to their business. And that w- that that last part is what I would say is really the benefit of approaching your job, regardless of who you are and what you do, as a strategist. That's mm-hmm. my philosophy. Approach your job as a strategist. You could be a designer. You could be a coder. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, there's a reason why we're in the room. And we really have to make sure that we're not misunderstanding that reason. Yeah, I, I know a lot of uh, designers, they, especially when starting out, they become order takers. And, right. Um, that's when the client starts kind of treating them almost like a a, a puppet. And I think um, taking more of a strategic approach, like you said, um, I, I've always think that it, makes you the expert and there's more respect Absolutely. as well and it's it's a mutual um a mutual relationship with you and the client so i think that's fantastic absolutely now, steering on from that question um to have a different perspective on this what are the disadvantages of not taking a strategic approach well i i guess i'd leave that to uh there's this gentleman named fred nichols okay and uh i i would i guess i would answer that by saying like one of his three outcomes he has four but i'll i'll give three of them um his paper is called strategy is execution what you do is what you get um so he lays out a matrix where a sound strategy plus a flawed execution equals a botched job. And really another term for that, Ian, is blame the designer. How many mm-hmm. times have you been blamed <laughs> when you know something doesn't quite work out? <laughs> and you know, at the same time, the real question is like, hey, what happened in our process between teams? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously something wasn't clear or didn't translate, but it's it's so much easier to blame the person who doesn't even understand business in the first place, right? So the design didn't quite come off, or for some reason, um, we didn't have what we needed on the execution side. It's really easy to sort of push that off when you know there's a sound strategy or a flawed execution, but at the same time, sometimes there's a sound execution. Sometimes we do our job and yet there's a flawed strategy. And at mm-hmm. that point, you're, you're shooting yourself or your team in the foot. So when you when you look at that you know our work was beautiful but the why behind what things look like wasn't solid um and so at that point you know now it's like obvious that the creative team should have been brought into the process at the beginning so 
when you look at these two situations, they really sum up, you know, 50% of all the times where you didn't have what you needed to do your job. You worked a miracle, a freaking miracle. And yet you still weren't trusted or you were blamed whenever things didn't work out. And so the other one is where you can see failure coming like a kilometer away. You know, bad communication, bad process leads to this is definitely not going to work out. Flawed strategy and flawed execution. That's never fun. So I guess I'd say that the disadvantages are the opposite of approaching your role as a strategist. You're in a situation where you have to, and in some ways you mentioned being an order taker. You're in a situation where you have to basically accept what's going on in the room without even understanding what is going on in the room. So all the times when they come out of the conference room and they're like, hey, you know, we need to see five, you know, versions of whatever it is by three o'clock and give me some coffee too. You know, at that point it becomes, why are we doing that channel in the first place? Like if you can't even ask those questions, if you, if you can't even recognize that what you're being asked to do, the channel you're being asked to do it in, the target that you're being asked to reach, and all those things don't align, then how many times do you think you're going to be asked to revise that? Because as the designer, as the person standing in between the client and the target that we're trying to reach, I always say that we, as designers and creative people, we provide that spoonful of sugar that make business and marketing objectives palatable to the public. And so if that person who's supposed to take that message to a specific target in the channel that they speak in, if that person doesn't understand how to you know, question the answers that either our clients or coworkers are coming to us with, then that's, that's a real issue. So I think, you know, as designers, we can find inspiration and order um, and at that point, you know, we can recognize when we don't have what we need to do our jobs and then we can ask for it. I think some of what you said then is probably resonating with some of the people listening um, because so. they are probably in a situation where they are um, working on logos or branding or web, whatever they are, and they are being treated as a puppet. You know, they are constantly having to make changes and stuff like that. So what I'm kind of... Con- trying to stress with this podcast is the importance of um using um strategy now um one thing that i do find uh when we start talking about like a strategic approach a lot of people will be thinking how do i do that what do i need to do and i know in your book you you mentioned about using a creative strategy framework yeah could you explain what that is and and how you would use it and if possible kind of steer it around um like logo design or branding in some way so that the um the audience can uh, relate absolutely. with it absolutely so if you do have the book already creative strategy mm-hmm. and the business of design the tool is introduced on page 42 but chapters six and seven are completely dedicated to it um so what is it um well first i developed it during my time at new york university And it is the basis of how uh, I serve my clients. My approach is the basis of the philosophy in my classroom at New York City College of Technology, where uh, I teach in the communication design department. So I've used it for new business pitches, focusing creative briefs, 
um, group strategy sessions or even as a thought starter tool when it's time to begin design. I always say that at the very beginning because I never know who exactly is listening. There may be some more uh, mid-level senior folks um, who are uh, managing teams and things of that sort. So just to get the value of how to use this tool out front. Um, information overload was a, was a huge issue for me when I began to learn business. So this is one of those tools where I learned to weave strategy into the creative process that's just focused on relevant information. Um, and it, for me, ensures that the work is on brand, on strategy, and on message. Um, so what is it? There are four columns and three steps to using this. First column is the target. And that's where I'm in a short fragment trying to boil down who we're talking to in demographic, psychographic, and behavioral characteristics. So if I were to use a um, uh, like single, single parent, urban single parent um, who, you know, something else, some other descriptor, but it would help me to understand this is where they live. This is their life stage. This is what things might uh, be like in their house and how they make decisions. So that's the first column. That's the target. Then I move to the facts. That's the second column. And really, that's the facts on whatever we're doing. Is it a brand, product, or service? And that's going to be really important whenever you're designing logos because you're going to want to understand, is this a rebrand? And what heritage has this brand been through? Or is this a launch? Is there no heritage to draw on? What are the connotations that they're trying to you know, articulate um, based on the product or based on the features or the benefits, which is the next column, column three. The last column is the message or the objective. And this is depending on what's needed. Uh, so if you're pitching or if you're freelance, you may be proposing a brand campaign. So if you're proposing a brand campaign, the message might be really important. Uh, what people need to take away when they come in contact with your packaging or the application of your logo or identity system. Or if you're in a meeting and the client comes in and says, we need to increase brand awareness, that's an objective that would go into that column. And that really would be the only thing that would be in that column unless you were proposing other objectives. So in my experience, the quickest way to really get utility out of this framework is to write down your notes from kickoff meetings. And again, this is speaking to senior designers and uh, art director folks or creative directors. Um, you can write down your notes directly into this framework uh, in the kickoff meeting um, and then transition those notes into a brainstorming session on a whiteboard, either by yourself or with your designers who report to you. First step is quantity. And you'll need to just remember that when you're creating, we never receive all the information from one place or even at one time. It's really a process. And um, that's how step one is completed. You're just putting as many things in those columns as you can find from the website. You're going beyond the website. You're going into um, chat rooms or you're going to um, places where people post about the brand Yelp. You're finding good information, bad information about that logo or about that identity or about that brand, really, because if somebody's speaking about the brand, they're talking about all the different touch points that you're going to either have to influence or recreate or 
uh, in some way addressed through design. So um, that's the first step. Um, and even though I've left briefings with either too much information uh, or irrelevant information, I've never left with all the information. But even after I then go back to the creative team and you know transition this to the whiteboard and we keep going and we get it more information or all the information, at that point, we still have to whittle it down to the right information. So step two is quality. And this is where you question each element in each column, such as like, hey, is this target accurate? And if so, what aspect of who they are or what they believe or what they do is most important to this particular assignment? That's where you're going to have to add, you know, a little bit of brain power to figure out as either a, a group or as the senior creative who's going through this, which aspect is more important? Is it who they are, like the facts? They're a man, they're a woman, they're married. This is how much household income they make. Um, they have this many kids or they have no kids. Um, is that more important or is what they think or believe, how, you know, how they make decisions, is that more important? Because at that point, you can then refine what you have concerning the target. Because if you can't get the target right, there's nothing to aim at. So your logo, your colors, your choices, your channels, where you speak, all of that is going to be built according to at, like how well you understand who, who you're talking to. Um, and then the next column in the fact column, we're, we're asking ourselves, can we build a campaign concept on that? Or can we build an identity on that? Um, so if there's something in their history, um, again, really easy example, BMW um, started out with I guess making propellers or engines, sorry. So it was about engineering. And so the logo is really, you know, a propeller. Um, that's in their heritage. The engineering is in their heritage. And so obviously that came about when it was time to, to design the logo itself. These are the types of things that you're going to want to ask yourself of all the elements in that column. Can I build a logo concept on that? And if not, then you should take it away. Another example recent example is Apple, for instance. Apple started, uh, I believe, in a, a garage. Um, you know, Steve Jobs and I believe uh, Wozniak, uh, Steve, Steve Wozniak, Wozniak, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're in the garage and, you know, they're starting Apple. So when you're looking at that, if you're doing a brand heritage campaign, maybe that is relevant, but not necessarily for the logo itself. You're not going to add some uh, garage door to the Apple like that. It, it's not going to be relevant. So really, this is going to require your judgment. Whoops. Getting a call. Don't Sorry worry if you that. need to take it. It's OK. <laughs> no, no, I definitely don't. I'm wondering whether it's going to be in the, in the audio. Yeah. I can cut things out. Don't worry. I'm going to edit that bit. Sorry, it's going to be on. funny. Uh, so, yeah, you're not going to add a garage door to the logo itself. So this is where as a designer, again, this is just a framework. You're going to have to, and it's only as good as the information and the thinking that goes into it. So you're going to have to think through whether something is relevant to what you're being asked to work on right now. If the answer is no, you can take it out of there, at, you know, that second column. Then features and benefits. So this is a complete list of the features that, you know, we're saying that this product offers. 
are they aligned with the right benefits? Now, remember, this is a ratio. This is where you connect the brand and the target. Brands are concerned with features. People are concerned with benefits. Like, what is that going to do for me? Uh, so you're going to have to understand all of that because your identity, your logo system is going to need to be the platform where the other communications are built on top of that, if that makes sense. Because um, the last thing you want to do is create something that's going to be, you know, forgettable, where the brand is spending all this money and yet people can't really remember who are, who's bringing them this message or where that packaging is coming from. Um, so the last column, the messaging, um, should the target, like what exactly should the target understand the people uh, who you're trying to talk to when they come in contact with our posters, our branding, our campaign work? Um, and that's going to go into the way you're using space, your the typefaces that you're proposing. All of that is going to articulate whether this is an upmarket brand, is this something that's about convenience, who are your competitors? All that stuff has to factor into your work. And obviously, you know, that's that's clear to all your listeners. But what I want to do here is explain that this tool is to help you organize all that information and then pull out what's relevant to what you're being asked to solve. And that's the third step. You're connecting the dots. You're looking across the categories for horizontal connections. This is about finding inspiration in order. And the value here is about the unexpected connections that emerge across categories. Really, ultimately, you should end up with quite a few options that you could discuss. Um, and really, um, I, I saw on Facebook earlier where you were addressing presentation. Um, mm -hmm. this, this particular part is where those two things align. So once you're pulling out that thread and you're looking across categories and you're choosing one, one piece of information from each category, you can then defend your concept or write a creative brief or begin brainstorming concepts. Or if you're in a meeting, an internal, or if you're in front of the client, you can defend your work or start presenting it like this based on the target's need or behavior. So that's the first thing. Let's start a conversation centered around this fact or truth from the second column. Using this feature or benefit in any headline or copy or messaging and deliver this message or accomplish this objective. Um, the way I, I like to talk about strategy uh, when I'm speaking to creative people is it's like brainstorming for a chess match. And the last thing I'll say on this is that you'll notice the benefits of weaving business and marketing considerations into your creative process when you notice that you're defending the work without being defensive. That's going to be a really important benefit of being able to, to organize your thoughts and then focus only on what you're being asked to solve in a way that especially if you're in a situation where you're being viewed as an order taker. If you sort of come in like this, um, it'll be a very different dynamic in the meeting um, mm -hmm. because of the fact that you're addressing the things that are keeping people up at night. Well, I know so, when I, when I work in this way, um, what you can do is you can, you can basically explain to the client that this is what we're trying to achieve and right. um 
you can then present your work based on that and encourage any feedback based on that. And um, what that does is it keeps you in control of the um, of the of the whole process and right. um, it, it stops the client, you know, s- making silly s- s- suggestions to try and. Um, you know that that could essentially ruin your work because what you're what you're doing is you're all working towards the same goal, and it means that you can uh, that you can uh, kind of stand up for what you're doing. Um, any choices that you've made, uh, you can actually you know explain the reason why you've done that to achieve specific things. So, um, yeah, the the framework that you've explained sounds fantastic for that. Yeah, it's definitely helped, and in, in you're mentioning a couple of things that you know. I want to manage people's expectations on you're never going to be able to completely like get rid of the left field, you know, crazy suggestion that we need to merge all of them together. Let's use purple, you know, like I like Chelsea use the blue from Chelsea, you know, like it's just, there's all these different things that at the end of the day, um, if you're not trusted or if your client is ignorant of what we do now, again, that's not saying stupid. That's not saying stupid, but that, that is saying that you are the expert in the room. That's saying that they're not versed on what you've been taught and the way you've been taught to solve problems. So, I believe that as designers, we are inherently teachers because we have to teach our clients why this is the best way forward. We have to teach them why we shouldn't do that, why we need to do that, why we need to do that for this amount of time in this way, in that channel, why things need to look like this and not like this. Um, That's a part of our job. So we'll never be able to throw out the possibility that if we set this thing up in the right way, if we do everything right and check all the boxes, if we learn language fluently, um, business fluently, and we're able to walk into that meeting, uh, you're, you're going to increase the probability that things go well. And you'll be able to drive things back on the road when they start going left or right. But at the end of the day, this is going to be a process for you. It's going to be a process for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with what you said, Dan, because t- to some degree, um, what we're doing is subjective. Um, so everyone's always going to have some kind of opinion. But like you said, working in this way gives you the best possible opportunity of actually um, getting the work agreed. And um, I think it adds more value as well because you're on the same yes. level as as the client. I just want to take a short break to briefly tell you a little bit more about FreshBooks, who have been amazing by sponsoring this season of the podcast. And without them, this wouldn't be possible. So if you're a freelance designer or small business owner, um, you need to keep track of your money, what comes in and what goes out. FreshBooks makes doing this quick and easy to ensure that you're properly organized for when you need to do your taxes. You can create invoices that look great. Um, You can add your own logo to them and color scheme. When you send your invoices, FreshBooks can tell you when your clients looked at it, so no more guessing. You can also receive payments online too, and your clients will love the fact that they can pay by card 
directly from that invoice. Now, I recommend that you give FreshBooks a try for yourself and you can do that with a free 30-day trial, no credit cards required. All you need to do is just visit freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. So anyway, enough about this. Let's get back to the interview with Douglas Davis. Now, you, you briefly mentioned about um, presenting the, the work. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to ask a question just to expand on that. Like, could you give some tips of how you would actually go about presenting your work when working strategically? Like, how would you go about doing that? Yeah. So um, just one last thought to, that sure. sort of will lead us into this answer. Um, you know, yes, we can say that, you know, this is subjective. We can say that. Um, and everybody has an opinion. But I, I need every designer or creative person listening to understand that, yes, everybody has an opinion, but clients pay us for our analysis. So it's going to be really important for you to come into the room knowing what you think and why. And I think in terms of like getting good feedback, um, it's going to be really important because that's going to like what you think and why you think that your analysis of the client business problem, the other competitors who they're trying to face. Are they a challenger or are they the top brand in the category? All those things need to factor into what you're creating and how you're presenting it, which logo uh, you end up choosing or which three logos you end up choosing to present to them. Uh, however, your agreement is going to work. Uh, all those things need to factor into it so that when you walk into the room and you have an opinion, you can have that opinion rooted in all those things and you can start peppering your answers. You can start peppering your setup with nods to those things so that you're really explaining to this person, you're teaching them that you understand that you've listened to what their business problem is, that you understand what's keeping them up at night. And so I personally believe that part of getting good feedback is is really ensuring that you're doing jo your job in the presentation by giving the audience or the client exactly what they need to understand the business rationale for the creative choices that you're recommending. Um, I also think it's really about who's in the room. So if I'm presenting to a business or a marketing team or client, they really want the recommendation first. Then they want why that's the recommendation. So that dovetails into everything I was just saying. You've got to understand the business problem at the other end of the spectrum, if you're if you're presenting internally to your creative director or art director trying to get to the next phase or trying to be the firm's recommendation to the client, you're as a design audience, we want to hear the process. And then we want to see the result at the end, like ta-da. But a business person doesn't want to hear any of that process because they didn't go to school to learn about typefaces. They don't understand what we do. And so talking to them is like, wah, 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 wah. like it's almost like when you're speaking to a technical client or a technical um, coworker and you're asking them, well, why does the site not have this particular functionality? And then they tell you all this back end Cody language and you're like, dude, 
why doesn't the functionality, you know, like, give me an answer. Like, you got to understand when an answer is not an answer, even though they're giving you the answer. If you don't understand it, it's not an answer. So it's the same thing here. This is a really important point, And I wrote this in the chapter in the book called Sell Without Selling. There's a whole chapter on this. But this is going to be a really important thing to remember that you're going to have to think about who's in the room. If you're speaking to that business or marketing audience, just lead with the recommendation. Here's the decision. Here's what we decide. This is what we don't recommend. And here's why. Whereas speaking to a designer, start with the process. We were inspired by an insight that we we saw, like whatever it is. And then you talk about how that led you to the end. Um, that sort of leads into a, another couple of things. Are you speaking to a decision maker or an influencer? And the difference between these two is if I'm definitely talking to the person who's going to green light the project or write the check or kill the project or not write that check, you have to know that going into the presentation because you need to frame it in a way that's going to help them to get to yes. That's why, again, I'll go back to what I said earlier. You must understand the, the context of the business problem that you're being asked to solve with design through design, with marketing, with strategy. It's, it's imperative that you understand that because if you're speaking to that decision maker and it comes across that you, you're not factoring in that stuff, then the conversation is going to be over quick and then nothing's going to go forward. Now, if you're speaking to an influencer, so if you've got to talk to a person who's then going to talk to the decision maker, you also need to know that because your presentation has to be transferable. The last thing you want to do is present something, give them your best pitch, ensure that they're going to recommend, and then leave in their hands to remember everything you said the way you said it in in your meeting when you know that they're not a creative person. So you're going to need to make sure in that sense that the feedback is coming from you deciding to write down everything that you're actually going to present in person the reason why you're presenting in person is that you're you're getting to the decision maker through this influencer. But at the end of the day, you're sending a presentation, a deck, something after you leave this this physical presentation and then whatever you leave behind is going to go from the influencer to the decision maker. At that point, you can decide through designing that presentation, adding whatever copy you need to add to it in the way that you presented it so that someone can read it. They can pass it around the organization and it's going to be ultimately the same impact as if you were in the room, even though obviously it can't be the exact same impact, but you just don't want to leave it to that person who is the influencer. And I feel like at that point, you can get great feedback because you're laying the groundwork and you're rooting what you're talking about in the context of the business and the marketing objectives. And so at that point, you're framing what you're doing. And in some ways, the way that you said earlier, you're, you're reminding them that here's the problem that we're facing. This is the answer that I'm proposing. So you can then have that be the yardstick. The worst thing you want to do is walk into the room, and I made these mistakes, walk into the room and just be like, ta-da, here it is, with no context. Because at that point, you don't give 
the reviewer the yardstick with which to judge whether you've actually met the criteria or solved the problem. At that point, you're you're begging for them to say, I don't like it or I like it, even if they love it, right? That love is not based on anything but subjectivity at that point. So if it's not about does this work or does this not work and why according to the target or why according to the business problem or why because of the brand heritage. And that's why I chose this identity system. That's why I chose this typeface. That's why I chose this logo. That's why I'm recommending this. That's why I'm not recommending that. Um, At that point, you've set the stage to get the best feedback possible. I hope in, I'm hoping some of that answers that question. Yeah, it does very much so. Um, I've got a follow-up question, actually. Um, you mentioned about going into the meeting and desperately want to to go. Ta-da! Here's what we did. Um, yeah. <laughs> how would you How would you actually like set the scene? Would you like recap what you spoke about in the previous meetings, like the strategy that you was working towards, or run through some kind of story? Could you talk through how you would go about? How you how you go about doing that so that you are kind of like laying the foundation so that you don't get that initial um, subjective feedback. Yeah, so I like I have a structure um, that I love, and again, structures and frameworks are this is what worked for me. This is what works for me, and at different points, I'll do something different. But ultimately, I like to start with the insight. I like to start with what. What truth did I find about the brand, product, or service, the business category, the people that we're trying to talk to? What exactly is the pain point? What exactly was the business problem? Because, you know, you can say, hey, we want to increase sales. Obviously, you're trying to increase sales among a certain group of people, right? So before you can do that, you got to understand why they look for what it is that you're trying to sell. And then figure out, well, how does that fit into what they believe? So again, this is why going back to being able to use that framework is really important because while you're observing those people, while you're looking at what actually happens and trying to understand, well, why do they do that? You're ultimately going to hopefully extract insights. And that's an observation that you then say, well, this is happening. And you try to make sense of why. I always start with that because that ends up inspiring the concept itself that I'm then going to execute. Um, And from there, I talk people through what the executions are. And at that point, I can just read the work or show them or take them through what I did. And it all is based on something that came from research, either from their brand heritage either from the people that we're trying to talk to or from the business category at large so that it's really clear how the rational data points that we're all being asked to pour through then turned into emotional language that we call design. And then it becomes clear because you're drawing a straight line between what the research was and the business problem was and the execution, your solution is. And you really help them to understand that at that point. So that's what I do. Now, again, you have to read the room. Who are you in the room with? Um, How much 
explaining do you have to do? I remember being in a lot of situations where, you know, you're almost got the yes. And then for whatever reason, there's this hesitation and they say, oh, this is great. Let's do this exact same presentation with someone else in the room, my partner or whoever. Now, when this partner comes out of nowhere, it's almost like, okay, so we thought we were talking to a decision maker, but we were only talking to an influencer or for some reason, the fear is still there and we need to figure out exactly what that fear is so we can address it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So there's all these different things that you're going to have to, as the designer, read. Now, again, this, I'm not saying that you're going to come out of school and be able to do all this stuff. You're going to screw it up. That's just, that's the way it works. And that is okay. That's actually good um, because you need to see how many ways something can go. I remember being one of the youngest people in the room who just presented uh, some concepts for a restaurant we have here called Ruby Tuesday. And the client was asking questions about what the concept was behind like the imagery that we chose and while we're doing things. Now, I was probably all of 25, 26 years old. Um, I just propose that we even start the the digital arm of this advertising agency so no one else knew how to do this stuff in the room and and yet I didn't know that the questions that the client was asking me had to do with the fact that they weren't convinced on this particular point I couldn't understand that because I was too young so I wasn't even ready to have that meeting because I was too young and yet because I was the youngest person in the room I was able to be the expert on this digital stuff that no one else in the room understood. Does that make sense? You're always going to be in situations where, you know, maybe you're not ready, even though you're the most uh, qualified person on that particular point. And at that point, just do the best you can. And yes, you might lose the business. Yeah, the meeting might go bad. But at the end of the day, that's going to be a learning point for you. And you're going to be able to bring that to your level of experience going forward. And you have to, you you don't win them all. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, what I tend to do, um, like as a piece of advice, what I normally give out is that every time you screw up, you need to learn from that and um, apply it back into your business. I mean, I've done it so many times where when I started out, I offered unlimited revisions. Um, I, oh, I wow. Thought, well, I, I, I literally thought um, in, in the agency I, I worked at, they had bad clients. I thought, yeah, I can get good clients and I can keep control of this. Mm-hmm. But then the first time I had someone that just kept coming back and back and back, yeah. I, yeah. I just put in new processes. So um, I could do unlimited revisions, but within the quote, there's a, a fixed amount of time and um like I always say that there's no set way of doing things. You kind of need to find your own way of doing it. But if you learn from those mistakes, you screw up, it doesn't matter. You just learn from it and improve your business ongoing. Right. So I think that was really good advice. Now, I think we've got time. I, I want to ask you one of the questions from um, someone in the Facebook community. Cause I, yeah. I asked everyone in there if they got any questions and I thought um, Steph had a really good question. He asked, um, how do you present strategy in your portfolio and how do you make a strong case for it? Yeah. Steph, big shout out. 
from Brooklyn. <laughs> um, so how do you present strategy in your portfolio? So just keep this in mind. You're going to attract the type of client that your work says that you can service. So if your work sucks, right? Or let's say you've already gone beyond the ability that you're showing in your website because you you've been so busy doing the work that you haven't updated your your portfolio online. Mm -hmm. You got to remember that people are going to respond to the level of work that they see that you can do. Um, Brands are going to respond only if they feel like you're doing the caliber of work that they're used to. So the first thing is to understand that what you give off is what you're going to attract. So how do you make the case for strategy is you have to make sure that you're presenting what the business case is in your portfolio. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about having things be transferable. Um, You know, back in the day, whenever you could just drop off your portfolio physically and you had multiple copies of the portfolio, um, you, you physically went somewhere and dropped it off. Now, the, you're being weeded out at you know one o'clock in the morning whenever the intern is looking through who you're going to call in the next morning. So you got to understand that the first point of, uh, I guess the first cut that you make is being a part of the people who we're going to call in the next morning to actually meet maybe five people out of the 500. So making the case for strategy needs to happen upfront in your portfolio in the way that you're presenting what the problem was. And that's going to require designers to write. You're going to have to make sure that you're setting up what the business problem is right there on your uh, website or right there in whatever format that you're using. Um, And you got to sort of lay out what the business problem is. You got to talk about what exactly you're being asked to solve before you then talk through what the insight is and then what your concept is. So the same way that I was saying that I like to walk into the room to frame what I'm presenting is the same way that you're going to do that in writing uh, on your portfolio. And it doesn't have to be like several pages, but you make the case for strategy by presenting your work within a strategic framework. You make the case for strategy by making sure that you frame what you're doing um, creatively within the context of how those decisions addressed and therefore solved the business problem. And you're going to need to do that on your website so that you can get past the person who is cutting people out who, who don't understand that stuff. And then the next phase is to go in in person and then make sure that you're continuously referencing and not just as like this very stiff um, scripted way, but more so the questions that you're being asked, you need to then frame or at least respond in a way that shows that you're considering all of the business and marketing objectives, the business problems that might be relevant to that situation. Um, And at that point, that's how you're making the case because you're standing on strategy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic advice now we're close to the end of our time so I just want to ask you one last question just to wrap things yeah. up so if you could offer one piece of advice to uh, designers just starting out what would that be oh I love this question um, <laughs> find the fear and then push past it 
so many creatives, whether they're young or whether they're not, they're, they're afraid of making their own decision or they're afraid of failure. Screw that. You know, failure is how I got here. So fail, fail hard, fail often, and then find out what you think from your, from your mistakes. Um, just remember this, that everybody has an opinion, but clients, our clients, they pay for our analysis. Um, and, you know, I, I addressed this fear um, in chapter 14, I believe chapter 14 in my book. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's basically, uh, I, I created a short film and I dedicated it to anybody who's willing to, to address their fear or to even admit it. Um, people who are dealing with their fear, I believe, are going to, to, to be stronger for it. But the short film that I created is called Slay, and it's a visual essay about successfully managing fear. And it just chronicles the story of the fact that for me, and again, I'm still afraid of things. I want to be really clear about that. No pedestals, none of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm still afraid of like memorizing stuff. And I, again, I'm a public speaker. I speak all over the world. And yet, like, memorizing something and delivering it in a room full of people is terrifying, even though I've been doing this for 20 years. So I basically decided to take a stand-up comedy class in New York City and for five minutes stand on stage in front of strangers who are showing up to be entertained. I mean, talk about scary, you know, terrifying, like, my God, you know what I'm saying? Like, what am I thinking? You know, so like, help, you know, like, but you know, again, find the fear, you know, how, how do I write a, a chapter in a book about successfully managing fear? You know, dragon slaying is the chapter 14. That's what it's called. How do I write that chapter unless I'm doing that myself? So everybody faces doubt, fear, or excuses, but a creative person has to fight those things to unleash the creativity inside. Fear is a dragon that won't shut up. You have to silence it. So this visual essay really illustrates that struggle to push past the fear that hinders creativity. And again, it's inspired by chapter 14, Dragon Slaying, uh, of creative strategy and the business of design. I, I hope that it inspires anybody listening to successfully fight their fear and, you know, push past that to move into a position of strength and uh, more business. So you can see that on my website at thinkhowtheythink.com. Mm -hmm. So that's I'm my advice. Find that fear. Check that out. I, I think that's amazing advice. Um, I, I can relate with that because um, one of the reasons why I'm actually doing the, the podcast is because I have a fear of public speaking. Really? And um, I, well, a few years back, I was diagnosed with social anxiety and gotcha. um, I, I had quite, it wasn't bad stuttering, but when I was under pressure, I stuttered and right. um, podcasting has been a really useful way to overcome that. I've been going to like um, speaking classes, stuff like that. And um, if I didn't do any of that, I wouldn't now be talking to you. So um, yeah, I, I, I think it's it. good. Screw, I, I think it's good to, to I, I think it's better to try and fail than to uh, never try. Um, exactly. You don't want to be an 80-year-old man looking back and uh, regretting. <laughs> exactly. Well, you don't want to regret, you know, never trying. Um, exactly. I, I think you can do a lot by facing your fears. And um, it's, um, 
I think it's more rewarding as well. Like you're living, <laughs> you know, right. rather than just hiding and um, never facing your fears. Once you start facing your fears and come through the other side, it's it's more rewarding than um, absolutely any other thing that you can do in life. So I, I think I respect you. Advice. I respect you, Ian. And again, I appreciate you as someone again in the public eye. Um, you know, we're leaders, and mm-hmm. I, I don't take that lightly. And so I always talk about my own weaknesses. So I respect you for mentioning your struggle as well, because mm-hmm. it will help people listening. We are normal people. We put our pants on at you know one leg at a time. Um, and though people see us and they they appreciate what we've been doing, uh, I appreciate the Logo Geek community. I'm thankful to even be on this podcast, you know, and and it's just really important to to talk about fear and what we struggle with mm-hmm. because hopefully it does help somebody to push past what they're going through so thank you for this opportunity yeah no worries thank you very much well um douglas has been uh, it's been a fantastic interview um and as i said it's been a real honor to be able to um speak to you um i want everyone to to check out your book there's so much in there there's so much amazing advice <laughs> so um, much in, in your thank book you. Um, and, um, I, I think it's essential reading, uh, there's so many books out there and I think yours is one of the ones that are worth kind of picking up first and, and reading through, cause you're going to get a lot out of that. So I appreciate you, Thank you sharing some of the information from the book and, um, I want people to go and buy your book now. So, awesome. <laughs> so Douglas, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. Take care. Now, that was a fantastic interview. Douglas, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm totally honoured that you've been a guest, so so just thank you. Now, if you want to learn more about Douglas, be sure to visit his website, douglasdavis.com. And as already mentioned a number of times in this, you need to go and check out his book, Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. It's a brilliant read and I can't recommend it enough. Now, show notes for this episode with links to the book, um, Douglas's site and any resources mentioned um, in the interview can all be found at logogeek.uk forward slash 3.1. And it's worth noting from this season onwards, you'll also find transcripts of each episode. So if you want to read back through the interview rather than listening to it again, All you need to do is just go to the show notes and they'll be there. I do admit that my show notes in the past have not been particularly great, but that's something that I'm trying to change now. So yeah, go check them out and let me know what you think of them. Now, if you want to discuss anything mentioned um, in in this interview with either myself or Douglas, you can do that in the Logo Geek community um, on Facebook. And if you want to be part of that, all you need to do is go to logogeek.uk forward slash community. Now, the group has grown to over 5,000 logo designers from around the world. So I hope to see you there uh, with us to join in all of the discussions that are happening on a daily basis. So thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you. And I'll see you next week where I'll be chatting with um, Sagi Habib about saying no to clients. That's one I'm really excited about. So I hope to see you there.